0: And our Warren, on KCBA, 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Uh, we have uh, the author with us today, and he is Fernando Fora. Thanks very much for being on the show. It's my pleasure, Mr. Warren. So, um,. Uh, Tell us a little bit about you, first of all. How how did you get into uh, writing a book about uh, Robert F. Kennedy' killing? Well, in 1968, I was a newsman on general assignment for the Hollywood Citizen News, and um, I was on general assignment, so I could cover any you know. it, It it wasn't a particular section, politics or food or whatever. I was just on general assignment, you know, ready to go anywhere that the action was. And on the night of uh, June 5th, uh, which was the election night, uh, my assignment was to, because I lived in the San Fernando Valley. And so my, and my offices, I had, I was in charge of three news bureaus in the San Fernando Valley for the Hollywood city, the news which at the time was the second oldest newspaper in California or in Los Angeles. And so I, my assignment as I said, was general you know, assignment and that night I was assigned to cover the political offices or headquarters of the several candidates that were running for the legislature, uh, you know, uh, Senate, the assembly, etc. cetera. Right. And I was just cruising from one office to the other. And I remember that I was cruising from the office of one assemblyman called Negri to the office of another assassin, or a just uh, a candidate that had just won. Uh, And uh, while we're traveling there, uh, we heard the news that Robert Kennedy had been shot. Now, the person that was driving the car, I wasn't driving my car. I was driving with a very young man, a little younger than I was. I was 39 at the time. It must have been in his mid 20s. His name was Luke Perry, and he thought, and his cousin was spending prod- prodigious efforts to prove that they were related to the Kennedy family. They were looking at the, the genealogy, et cetera, et cetera. In any case he was very attached to the kennedy clan and he was a helper in the campaign as we we're cruising and we hear the news he almost he, the spring that came out of him was incredible oh no not him not him and uh, i asked him to park the car because he was very upset let's hear what's happening and then we heard the news that the senator had been shot at um you know while transiting the kitchen of the ambassador hotel which had been an alternate route for him that wasn't the way he was supposed to be moving and uh, we also heard that he had been removed to the um to the hospital you know hospital well I called my editor, of course, you know, immediately I called my newspaper to see if they had any new assignments for me or anything they wanted me to do. And I was told that my political editor was already on site and uh, there was another reporter on site and I should just stand by and see what I I could pick up. But uh, there was no special assignment for me. Uh, under that circumstances, or any, like any good newsman would do, I headed for what the action was, which was the, the ambassador and the, and the hospital. When I arrived uh, at the hospital, uh, the senator had been transferred to um, Good Sam, Good Samaritan, they call it in Los Angeles, they call it Good Sam, where he was being operated because the other hospital did not have the facilities. And Dr. Nagoshi, the uh, coroner for Los Angeles, was already inside, you know, ready for an autopsy. And so from there, that was only a vigil. There was nothing happening there, just hundreds, possibly thousands of people waiting outside for news about the condition of the senator. And I realized there's no news here. It's just a vigil, you know, waiting to see what happens. So... An hour later, there was an. Um, I knew that there was a press conference coming at the police headquarters by police chief Reding in about an hour. So I asked Luke to take us to uh, to the Parker Center, which is police headquarters. So we went to Parker Center, where the security was extraordinary. I had never seen security like this. Uh, They, uh, they were for the first time that I saw that they were even checking newsman credentials. And uh, they screened me through, but of course, Luke Perry could not come through because he was not a member of the press. So he waited outside and being the talented young man that he was, what he did is he planted himself next to the policeman that was checking the credentials. (laughs) <laughs> now when it came out of the press conference, uh which did not offer much, you know, reading uh besides telling us his first lie, he said that he had talked to the hand, which is what not it wasn't true at that time he had not. Uh he um he said that uh they had captured the guy and they know who he was, he got the gun and they were tracking the gun down, et cetera, et cetera. And um so he gave us the bare details that that they knew at the time. Uh, in the meantime, outside, Luke Perry uh, had heard a young man um, come to the police at the door and tell him, I says, I got a story that they may be interested in. So he says, what is that? He says, well, you know, this man that I saw being pulled out as the assassin, meaning Sir Hansen Han, he says, I saw him before at another party with a woman and two other men. So maybe they need to know this insight. And the policeman just listened to him politely and decided that it wasn't of any consequence. So he says, well, you know, they'll find out. And he sent him away. But Luke Perry, being as smart as he was, he picked up on the on the subject. He said, well, you know, the me be the source the assassin was a company so when i came out he told me the story and of course i found it interesting but where do you begin checking that story you know who are the other two people yeah anyway then we really start coming into the interesting part knowing that he the presumed assassin had been seen with two other people or two other men and a woman prior to the killing. I started seeing if I could use my sources to find out if the police who who knew who these men were and I had a lucky break. Uh, My lucky break was that one of my bureaus was at the San Fernando Police Station. And I had very good relations there with the police chief and and several of the uh, detectives and and most of the members of the department. And one of them calls me up and says, "Fernando, you've been trying. They've been trying to get hold of you. Somebody has a tip for you regarding the Robert Kennedy killing." So I. I couldn't imagine what would be. But anyway, one thing leads to another. I do find, uh, make a long story short, uh, I chased the lead. I found the lead. I chased it. It was in Orange County, which is a very conservative uh, county in Los Angeles. Uh, I decided to go early in the evening and get out very early in the evening because of the fact that I knew I was engaged in a very delicate, the subject. So, and of course, you know, in those days, most of us did not trust the Christian uh, police. So, I went over to this address that I had, and I found out this man was not, they described him as uh, Palestinians or Latins, this man was actually a Puerto Rican. I'm a Puerto Rican myself, so, when I introduced myself, I met him so no so make him feel better. And he came out of the house, and I told him I was trying to confirm a story. And he said, Look, I already told the FBI and the FBI tell me not to talk to anybody. And so I talked to him a little more, try to convince him to tell me his story, he still refused. And I said, Well, okay. I have enough of what I need. So let me tell you this. You, you're refusing to give me this because you're afraid of what would happen. The best protection that you could ever have is making this story public because then there's no reason to harm you. So he said, well, yeah, but I, I can't defy the FBI. I said, well, tell you what, you don't have to tell me the story. I'm going to tell you the story. And if you don't stop me and tell me that I'm lying and that I'm not telling you the truth, then I would assume that my story is correct. And you haven't told me, so you can tell everybody that you didn't tell me. So we did it that way. Told him the story I had, which was that he had come into the rafferty party early in the evening, so say hand there with two other men, talking to them. And, uh, no, he, he came in, he came in with a friend, and he is one of the two men or so was, was seen talking to Sehan. And Sehan at that time was having an argument with one of the young women that were taking care of hosting the event, you know, passing drinks and so forth and so on. And he didn't have a press pass, so they denied him a drink, and he threw a $20 bill on the tray and he said, well, is that enough for you, you know, keep the change? And he was having an application with this woman. And these two men were observing it. And when he finished with that woman, she came back to them. And started with a diatribe against uh, Robert Kennedy. Uh, He was a millionaire. He was a rich man. He didn't care about the poor, blah, 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 blah. You know, it, it was really unloading about Robert Kennedy. And then he moved on. And these two men stayed where they were. They did not go with him because they were not with him. I was able to determine that. So this man told the police this, and they told the FBI this. But first they told the FBI and the FBI didn't send them to the police. They said, just go to the police and tell them if you need to. But most of them didn't. They had to be dragged to the police they dismissed you know, anybody that had anything to say that did not appear because they already had Srehan's hand. The moment Srehan started shooting, they were able to capture him in the kitchen. There were dozens of people in that kitchen right. who witnessed the shooting. Now, what happens next is the part where the book is really about, is yeah. the polka dot file. Right. What happened here is that after the shooting or immediately after the shooting a young woman in her mid-20s and a man ran out the back door shouting we shot him we shot him she did not him she did we shot him we shot him as she ran past a kennedy worker called sandy serrano sandy was a young woman responsible young woman that was worker for uh, the Kennedy campaign and she was outside because it, it was a big crowd inside, it was hot and she sat at the steps outside the hallway leading to the kitchen uh, to have a cigarette and get some fresh air as she sat there a woman in a pocket dot dress and two men went past her as they went past her the woman says excuse us Now, that's a key word there, us. Right. That means the two people behind her are accompanying her. It wasn't excuse me, you know, let me get through. It was excuse us. That binds the group together as far as I'm concerned. Right, yeah. They get get past her and enter the building. She stays there smoking. And a few minutes later, the same woman, and one man come running past her, Shinny screaming, We shot him, we shot him. She it's a natural reaction says, Well, who'd you shoot? And the woman exclaimed, Kennedy, as she kept running into the parking lot and the darkness and into history because we never found her. So Now Sandy, sitting there, she she doesn't know what to make of this. So she goes back, she hears the commotion, she goes back into the kitchen, she inquires, and she does find out that it is true that the senator has been shot. Now, by this time, the press and the police have reacted to this. They have captured Sahin. They have uh, started to put all of the witnesses in one room so they could question the witnesses that were in the kitchen. And of course Sandy was there, so she fell into that net. And she was put into the same room with the other kitchen workers and other witnesses, one of which was a pivotal witness called Vincent de Piero. Pierre worked at the kitchen, he's is, is or what what well, is the son of the Matri D of the Ambassador Hotel, very responsible UCLA student. Right. Now uh, when when Sandy gets brought into this room with everybody else, there's a newsman there called Sandy Van Oker. He was a very well known newsman for CBS. Uh, you know, in the evening news and Sandy is interviewing everybody and Sandy gets to, uh, and that's Sandy Van Oker and he gets to Sandra Serrano and Sandra Serrano tells him the exact story I just told you about the woman coming in first with two men, then running out with one man, shouting, we shot him, we shot him and running out into the dark. Now, when this young woman, Sandy Serrano, tells that to CBS, it goes worldwide. Well Spend the money, because now what we're looking at is a possible conspiracy. And now this this mystery woman, nobody knows who she is, or you know they have no notion of who she is. And Sandy's story goes over the air live, unedited. So the whole world learns about the woman in the polka dot dress. And the whole world gets fascinated by the woman in the polka dot dress. And everybody starts searching for the woman in the polka dot dress, supposedly. Particularly the FBI and the police. Now, Sandy goes home and everybody goes home. And the police presumably is chasing these people. And Two days later, while well, this is happening, two days later, I had found out this man that was at the Rafferty Party, and I published or my newspaper, the Hollywood Citizen News, which at the time was the second-oldest newspaper in Los Angeles. They published a front-page headline, block letters two-inch high, that Sam had been at the Rafferty Party, drinking and having an altercation. That was front page news. By noontime that story went national. So now the woman in the pocket address is back in the news. The fascination of the town is who is this woman? When that happened, the following day to that happening, which is three, is about a week after the actual shooting, I'm discussing this story with my editor and, and my publisher. And we're talking about how in the beginning they didn't want to publish this story because I didn't want to give the name of my source. And I said, there's no way I'm giving the name of my source even to you. I said, this is, this is, no one has access to my sources. So we were arguing about that. And uh, then we said, well, you know, it won't be long before the police shows up here trying to find out how much more do we know that they don't know. And so sure and so, uh, we looked at the front door, and there was a young man in there, a kind of a, a handsome young man in his mid-30s, I would say. And he, the secretary, the receptionist was pointing towards us, so we knew she was inquiring about one of us. And so since we were talking about the police and he looked like a policeman, he said, well, here they are. And so my editors went to their desk and left me alone. And he came to me and he says, did you publish this story? And I said, yes, I didn't publish it. Did papers publish it? But that is my story. Yes. And he says, I think I spent the day with this woman. Oh. And that really was a shocker. I said, really? He says, yeah. He says, well, you want to tell me about it? He says, yeah, I'd like to tell you about it, but I need protection. And I said, well, I can't give you protection because I'm not the police. But the best protection in the world sometimes is come out with a story, you know, which is the same thing I told the other man. And he says, well, I'll tell you, but we can't talk here. He figured, you know, it was an office full of people and there might be eavesdroppers and so forth. So anyway, I said, fine. I have three police bureaus. We can go to any one of them you want. The closest one is San Fernando. We can meet there if you like. And he says, uh, yeah, that'll be fine. And so late in the afternoon, we met at the San Fernando police station. And I tape recorder. his interview. Wow. And I tell you, I, 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 I punched the, the, the tape recorder, asked him for his name, his address, phone number, etc. His occupation. And then I asked him to tell me the story and to record it as best as he remembered. And I just observed as he spoke very, I had very few questions because I didn't want to interrupt him. I wanted him to have a full flow of, you know, a stream of, of thought. And while I was listening to what he was taping, it, it was just absolutely incredible. This man has tried to pick up a woman at the hotel. He was a chemical salesman. And he was trying to pick up a woman. He was waiting there for a, because he had an appointment at the hotel to sell them chemicals for cleaning. Right. And he was there at 830, and he sees this woman walking on the corridor. She was gorgeous, a beautiful, statuesque figure. Her face wasn't so, so hot. She had a nose like Bob Hope, more or less. And, but she was a very attractive woman. She, she, she attracted everybody's attention. So he tried to pick her up. And she rejects it. Oh, too bad. And uh, uh, the the salesman, you know, uh, his name is John Fahey. And he tries to pick this woman up, and she just doesn't pay attention to his advance. And but he says to her, says, "Well, you know, pick pick one, pick any, they're all the same." You know, he says to her jokingly, and she just looks at him and says, "Well, yeah, I guess so." And then she says, is there a post office in the hotel? I said, no, I didn't know that hotels had post offices. I know that I know. She says, okay. She turns around and walks away from him. He sees his efforts have failed, decides to keep waiting for his partner, the salesman that going to sell to the hotel. And he goes to the coffee shop, which is in the same corridor, and sits down, have a cup of coffee. Ten minutes later, the same woman comes and sits next to him and starts a conversation. And inside of the conversation, it is the usual thing, "Well, how long have you been here? Where are you from, etc., etc. And this one at the counter tells him that she has been in Los Angeles for about three days, that she had come from the Middle East a place called Beirut or Aqaba. He didn't remember which one. It was either Beirut or Aqaba. He didn't even know if there was a city named Beirut, he asked me. <laughs> so uh, he she tells him that, and he says, well, are you staying in the hotel? She says, no, I'm not staying in the hotel. He says, well, what, what are you doing here? He says, well, I don't think I can tell you. I don't know that I can trust you. And that really took him back. I mean, as he would anybody. I mean, this is a social situation where it appears that he may have succeeded in bringing her back and all of a sudden, she says, I don't know how I can trust you. But anyway, he says, Well, what do you mean by that? And she says, Well, I just don't know that I can trust to tell you the whole story. And he realizes that there's more people around them in the counter now, and so he suggested they go to a table. He says, well, why don't we take a table, and then we can talk. And she says, yeah, that will be nice because I'm also so hungry. i like to have breakfast. So they take a table. They order breakfast. She has breakfast. She has coffee and toast. But during that breakfast, which took about 45 minutes, all she would say was, I don't know that I can trust you, but they're going to take care of the senator tonight. They're going to take care of Senator uh, Kennedy tonight. She kept repeating this the whole day. They left the hotel because they were being observed. She said we were being watched. And he looked and they were being watched. So now he's spooked. Now he's afraid he doesn't know what he's getting into. So now he, he he decides i better get rid of this woman so he says well I, I really have to go let me pay the bill and i really have to go nice meeting you but i have some clients in ventura and Oxnard that i have to service and he starts getting up to get out and she says well can i go with you and he interprets that as she's trying to get away from the people that are observing them and he says well okay then give me company if you want to do that and so they get out of the hotel by the way as they're getting out of the hotel he, he headed in one direction and she headed in the other and then she calls him back and says this is a more direct way to get to the parking lot and she knew a hallway and a stairway that led to the parking lot that he didn't know and he obviously wasn't in too much use down, he found strange because she had said she was not staying at the hotel and she'd been in Los Angeles only for three days. Right. So how is she so familiar with the hotel? Anyway, he found that strange, but they do get into the car and they start driving. The moment they get into Malibu, which is on the coast, in mm-hmm. the Pacific Ocean, heading north for Ventura, which is two hours north of Los Angeles, They picked up a tail, which she saw and she said, look, we just picked up a tail. He looks back, sure enough, they have a car behind them. Look, you know, like it's trailing them. He slows down, the car slows down. He speeds up, they finish it. So he proves, or he tries to ascertain that this guy is in fact following them. And he did. They made one stop in a tourist viewing area where there's a big rock, The other car stopped in there also, behind the rock. So this game and mouse, this cat and mouse game, continues during the day. He gets in the car, he drives to Oxford and Ventura to where he makes several turns and evasive actions and he's able to evade them. And on the way back, has a flat tire, the trucker helps him change it. And about five o'clock, 5.30, they're heading back for Los Angeles, because um, he doesn't know what to do with her, and she will not give him more details, except little morsels of information. For example, they're going to take care of Mr. Kennedy tonight at the winning reception. She said it clearly at the winning reception. So she predicted the killing with accuracy. She said clearly, i belong to a group that means she is one of the conspirators right but she would not give him full details now what we have here so far is a young woman that in desperation reaches out to a local man she doesn't know you know a salesman to help her get a passport to get out of the country the next day, June 6th. Now he knows, he's he's a local guy, he used to be in the army, so he did not need, he was in the Air Force, he didn't need any passports, he never had a passport, he didn't know how to get a passport. So he told her. She in turn told him how to get a passport illegally. But that would have taken days, and she couldn't do it, so she was, against the wall she needs a passport get out and he cannot help her and she doesn't know if he can she can trust him fully. but in any way when, with this game that she's playing with him, he's very confused he doesn't know what to do with it. and so they go to coming back from Oxnard, she says she's hungry, and, or she suggests, you know, let's have a drink because, you know, we haven't had any to eat all day long. And he doesn't drink. He said, no, I don't drink. He said, well, then let's have some to eat. They stop at a restaurant called Tranka's. Tranka's is an iconic restaurant. I've been there forever, which is a favorite of the Malibu crowd and the people that go to the Malibu beach. And um, they sat down. They had the evening special. He remembered clearly how much he paid. He remembered clearly what they ordered and he remembered clearly where they sat. So on the way back, they stop. they have this dinner. And at that point he says, look, I think it's better if I take you to the police, you know, you can't trust me. You don't know what it is, so so what can I do? And I'll, I'll take you to the police. And she says, no, 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 you just take me back. I got to get back to the ambassador. And so they agree on that. And he takes it back to the ambassador and drops her about 6.30 at the ambassador hotel where once more she invites him to observe the killing. As bizarre as that sounds. She says, you don't believe me? Come and watch it for yourself. And she slams the door and leaves. He is relieved, goes home to his wife, and the next day he hears in the news, when he's going to work, he hears all over the news that the senator has been shot the night before. Now he's really worried, if he figures, my God, that woman said that we're going to take care of the senator last night, so maybe she has implicated me in something nefarious. Right. So he is, he doesn't know what to do, with. so what he does, best thing he does, and which was the right thing. And by the way, it was very, it was wonderful for me, in the long run, that the first choice he made was to go to the FBI. So he went to the FBI, he tells the FBI his story, they ask him if he'd been a the police. he says no. They advise him. Maybe you should go see the police, but they don't make an effort and push him in that direction, or tell him, or or tell them about him and what an important story he has. They do no such thing. They just say, "Well, you should tell them," and that's the end of that. Well, why would why why would the FBI just do that? Why wouldn't they be, take it more serious? Well, if the FBI was taking it seriously, and apparently they did, because they did some investigation. But it is it is common knowledge that the FBI and the LAPD and other investigative agencies don't have any love lost. This has been one of the shames and one of the, particularly for the newsmen that know this, that the FBI and the LAPD has never cooperated with one. For them, it is better they let a criminal go and I make this charge clearly in those days. These people were competing with each other in such a manner and they hated each other in such a manner, they would not give each other time of day. And so the FBI, I presume that by telling the witness, go see the police, you should tell them, they figured that their uh, duty had been saved. I don't think so. I'm proud you don't think so. Hmm. They should have insisted on something more important because the one in charge was the police, not them. But they didn't do that. They just said, well, you should go tell him. And that was the end of that. Instead of doing that, he comes to me. He goes to my office. He finds, I tell you how we found how He comes in, inquired about me. We meet. I take his story. And after I take his story, I couldn't believe the story. It was bizarre. It was incredible. So, the next day, that same night, I had the tape transcribed, which again was very sad because uh, uh, the the next morning, I gave the transcript to one of my sources in the metro spot, which in turn gave it to the S.U.S. S.U.S. was Special Unit Center. It was a special unit that was formed to investigate the killing. and. So they, they they really don't have him, but they have the transcript they see the transcript and immediately their reaction was immediate. When I gave him the transcript in the morning, about 10 o'clock in the morning, about one o'clock, I already had an answer. He said, we wanna see this man right away. So I made the arrangements which, by the way, in those days, it was kind of silly it was, you know, a lot of coke and baggage stuff, you know, uh, James Bond, you know, because nobody knew what was happening. Right, right. And everything was very fluid. Uh, and nobody knew who was who. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, the, we uh, uh, I gave him the transcript, they say, we've got to have the man right away, we met. I met with one of them, uh, or Steen name name was in uh, we agreed on how the exchange was going to be made. Reminded me of a Tom Lime's movie, you know, Bridges Spies. Uh, yeah, I know, I bring him over to you. So, uh I took, uh, the witness, Dion Faye to Parker Center. It was about 11 o'clock in the morning. And when I took him there, and I announced myself on the witness, and I said, uh, they, they have an interview with him now. One of the guys came down, Steve came down from, from the S.U.S. unit and said, look, we're busy now with another witness. Can you bring him back? He tells me. Or can you guys come back? And, of course, I immediately said, of course we can come back. And he looked at me and I said, of course we can come back. And I couldn't believe my ears. The LAPD, after reading my script... Of this woman predicting with accuracy the murder of the senator and admitting that she was part of a group to do the deed. In spite of that, they're gonna let this man walk out of police headquarters with me in New yeah. I couldn't believe my ears. I think my God, <laughs> this is a Max Senate comedy. Yeah. This is the police department that is vaunted, you know, worldwide. It's been so great. Actually, they're going to let that witness walk out with me. And I said, sure, I'll bring him back. The moment we step out of Pakistan, I said, look, we have two or three hours now. What we can do is this. You are going to take me on the same trip that you took that woman. Every stop you made, every place you stopped, how long you stopped there, what you did while you were there, where you spat. I want you to take me to every single detailed spot that you made a spot and you can point out to me. And he said, Yeah, we can do that. So we got in the car. We ran down there. He stopped by the parking lot where they had stopped. He took her to the beach. Uh, There were people working there. He gave me the whole story. We stopped at the rock where he remembered another important piece of the story. That she had mentioned that in her way through New York, she had met with a very important person in the Republican Party, who was working in the Nixon reelection committee, three days before the killing. Oh. Now yeah, <laughs> would that have the interest of the FBI? You bet. Yeah. Would it? Yeah. I mean, here is a woman that predicts the killing the day before it happened, or, or hours before it happened, predicts where it's going to happen, has been seen with the killer before and during the killing in the kitchen. This woman is a woman in the polka dot dress. Now, when she... After the, the, the shooting, you know, and she disappears, you know, the FBI continue to pretend well no i I do know that the fbi did chase you know at least because one of the leads that i was chasing they were chasing also and and my investigation was actually ahead of theirs because they unfortunately have the the code of conduct and they have a requirements of the law that have to be met in their investigations. You know, the press doesn't have those restraints. You know, we just go in and ask questions. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. And, um, he, uh, the, uh, the situation was, was so incredibly fluid that it, all of a sudden we're fighting each other. All of a sudden the FBI is trying to stop Feihe from talking to me, which is not unusual. They, they do that all the time. And uh, every single witness that I went to, they were right behind, and they interviewed the witness also. So I knew that my investigation was here. of theirs. Then all of a sudden, I get a phone call. When my story was front page, I get a phone call from Life Magazine. Jordan Bonfante was the Bureau Chief, and he... Wanted to know if I published story, if I was the one that published a story on, on the popular woman. I said, yeah. So we chatted and he invited me to join their investigation. For which I was very pleased, of course. You know, I'm very flattered. And, and I told but I told him, I said, you mean, I said, well, what else do you have? How, how do you want me to help? How can we help each other in this investigation? Well, we don't really have much more than you have. You know, we have... You seem to be ahead of us. And uh, and I said, well, in, in that case, what you mean is you want to join my investigation. So he said, well, he laughed. He's a good, a good man, decent man. And he uh, he laughed. I said, well, put it any way you want, but I think we should join forces, which we did. Uh, and I was happy to join forces with, with Jordan Bonfante and the man that wrote the book, R.F.K. Must Die, which was the first book, it was, it was Robert Kaiser, you know. Robert Kaiser and Jordan and I were working together uh, in the beginning. And and in fact, the book that Kaiser wrote was over to me first. And in a dinner at the Sahan, uh, at the lawyer for Sahan's family's home in Pasadena. I said, no, not interested. And Kaiser, who was there at the same dinner, later on wound up with the assignment of the book, but I don't know if it was Marcus, the lawyer for Shahan that arranged it, or he arranged it on his own. I don't know how that happened. I know that Marcus offered me the book, and I said, no, I have no interest in this. And uh, so I let it go, and I continued my investigation. And the woman in the dot dress when you look at this crime, it it, it reminds me of what the army and President Winkler used to say keep it simple stupid. When you run into a situation like this, the best thing to do is take a complex problem and reduce it to simple nodules so that you can handle the facts, and then you can reassemble the facts to see exactly what really happened. Now, in this case what we have here, if, if, you know, to organize it for your audience, what does this mean? Okay, what it means is that we have a Kennedy worker that says that a woman run by saying we shot him, we shot. Him. And that woman tells the story to the whole world without any shame or any fear or anything. She just goes and tells it what as she knew it at the point at that, that point in time. But what else do we have? We have the police department on the other side of this woman say it's a figment of her imagination. She never heard that. It's not true. It's just, she was excited and it's a figment of her imagination. Okay. Now faced with that, us, the rest of the public, what can we do? You know, we. this is what unfortunately in court is called a piercing contest. You know, you say one thing, the other guy says another, Yeah. but not in this case. Why? Because in this case, we have more than two dozen other witnesses who saw that woman and who gave the exact same description. Now, the question that rises in your mind then is, how can the police or whomever made the decision that denied the existence of the woman think that they can get away with it? That kitchen was full of business people. Politicians, newsmen, people that saw the woman in the polka dot dress. People who described the woman in the polka dot dress the same way. Vincent Piero saw the woman in the polka dot dress, put her arm on his shoulder, her hand shoulder, and he smiled and held her down from a bin where she was standing before he started shooting. All this is told to the grand jury all this is told in the trial. And yet, it means nothing to the FBI. And it means nothing to the SUS unit. In other words, is their word against our word and those of us that were there on the spot, which they were not. And they say the woman doesn't exist. Well, as a newsman, I feel well, I guess my job now is to go out and prove to them that she did exist. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> right? Right. I, I mean, I, I always, like I said, I, I like to keep it simple. As you say, it's not true. I say it's true. Man, let me prove it to you and I'll bring you the solid evidence. As a newsman and chasing the truth, I want to be able to convince you and your audience that I'm not blowing smoke. I want to give you... Evidence that you go out and you prove yourself. Because, you know, the use is no different than science. You know, in science, you make an experiment, you discover something, you have to reveal your protocol so that other scientists can repeat the experiment and come up with the same result. Is that not so? Right. The owner of Tranca, he got permission, he gave us permission, so we returned to the hotel, I mean, to the restaurant, and the restaurant manager gave us a box of receipts and Jordan and I divided the receipts and started looking for that date, June 5th. And we found all the June 5th receipts. Then we segregated the receipts to the time of the day because we knew it was late afternoon so we eliminated all the others so we had a smaller batch. Then I knew the table that he had pointed out where they stopped so I went out and I said, what table number is that? This is 14. I go back in and I said, let's look for table 14. We look for the receipt, find the receipt for table 14 for June 5th. Guess what? Exactly, exactly what John Fahey had said. The amount that he had paid, what they ate, the time, everything, exactly the way that he had said it was. So the manager calls the waitress that was serving that table and says, do you, Are you aware of this? She says no. He says, "Well, uh, were you working that that day at that table?" He says, "Well, the FBI came in and they asked me, and I said them no, I was no, and they got angry and they left." And I said, "Well, but were you working that table that day at that hour?" She says, "No." I said, "So in other words, the FBI questioned the wrong person." (laughs) I said, "Yes." I wasn't even here that day. I said, "That's interesting." I said, "Okay, now we we have the uh, the exact figures and everything." So I said, "Okay, whose signature is this? Because the ticket was signed." I said, "Is that your signature?" And she says, "No, that's not my signature." Says, "Who's it that?" Says, "Jan Page." So I look at the manager and I said, "Jan Page, you know her?" I says, "Yeah, she works here." I said, "Could you please call Jan and see if she would receive us?" And he said, yes, he was very cooperative. So he called John Page. He tells him who we were, what we were doing, and he arranged for us to meet John Page. Later on, we meet with John Page at the Malibu Pier. And we sat down at the Malibu Pier, the cocktail Lounge. Nice, beautiful afternoon. We tell him what we're doing, who we are, what our interest is, and I said, and I had the pictures. You see, when I when I first said, and did, this is an important feature that, that I forgot to tell you. When uh, Fehi described this woman, everybody started in this room describing this woman as a beautiful one, etc., etc. What I did is, I I took Fehi to a police artist and they made a police composite picture of what the woman looked like. Then I took that composite picture to an artist, a regular artist, a cartoonist, a portraitist. I took it to him, and I said, I want you to take this police composite and make me a portrait as if you were looking at that person. So he does the portrait. Then I took that portrait, and I got... Fehi a week later, Fahey and the artist together in my office in Hollywood, and I put them together alone. I said, okay, Fahey, you'll make the corrections that you need to this photograph. He will make them. So they worked together for about an hour and a half until Faye said, that's the woman. Now we know we have a mere photograph of the woman in the polka dot dress. We have now a reasonable facsimile of the woman in the polka dot dress according to faith, But that's not enough. We need more. So I said, okay. Vincent DiPiero was the one that we all knew had been right next to the girl. And Vincent DiPiero was the neighbor of a friend of mine who was a young lawyer who was also going to UCLA. So I talked to my friend, Gary Barnett, and I said, Gary, I need you help on this. I need you to take these pictures. And I had two versions. One with a woman in a polka dress with a ponytail hanging over her shoulder. And one with a bun on top of her head. I said, I want you to put this in a magazine, take it in, introduce yourself. Don't tell him what this is about until she sees the pictures. And I gave him what my idea was. Because... De Piero had already and everybody else had been instructed by the court not to speak or say anything about the case to anybody. So Gary, being the good sport that he is, says, Okay, fine. So he goes down the block, knocks on De Piero's apartment door, the father answers, he introduces himself as a neighbor looking for for the son De Piero. The father gets the son and leaves the room and the piero the young man and and, and uh, uh, uh gary barnett sit together in his front room and he says after the initial exchange of tris, "Oh, well, yeah, i go to ucla also i've been going there i live down the street in the block and number baba you know they go through all those nice cities then gary pulls the magazine out and says, look, I have a client that wants to know if you know this pit bull. And at that moment, he opens up the magazine with a picture of the woman in the polka dot dress in the bun. DiPiero looks at the picture, sits back and says, this has to do with the Kennedy killing, doesn't it? And before he could say anything else and shut up and say nothing else, Gary Burnett flips the next page and shows the other picture with a polka dot dress woman with a pony, with a hair and a pony over her shoulder. He says, how about this one? The pair of containing himself. He says, that's the woman. Now, what do we have now? Yeah. We have now one woman who predicts the killing accurately, who admits as being part of a conspiracy for that killing. She is seen by dozens of people in the kitchen. She's seen particularly for the main witness of the prosecution, Vincent DePiro. Vincent DiPiero says, that woman that you just showed me the picture of is the same woman that I saw Sahan helping down before he started shooting. Do you need anything more solid than that? This is Vincent Rio, their own witness. And he says, this is what happened. Now, they do the same thing to him as they did to Sander Serrano. The people in charge of the investigation of the SUS, SUS units, special unit senator, the man in charge was a man called Manny Peña, Mani Pena was a detective in the US, in the uh, LAPD. I wrote, personally, I, Fernando Fora, wrote the retirement story of Mani Pena from the LAPD. And it was a nice, beautiful, flattering story. The chief was there, everybody was there, it was a big affair. After the Senator's killing, and after they confiscated my tape because they they asked me that they taped to du- duplicate it, and then they said they couldn't find it, and they couldn't find anybody that said they had accepted the tape. And like a fool, I had not asked for a receipt which I should have, and I did not. In, in, in the heat of those moments, I did not ask for it, and I didn't have it. So they denied the existence of my tape. They did not deny the existence of the transcript, but they deny the existence of the thing. In any case, uh the uh the woman in the pocket of the address who had already by her own admission proven that we have a conspiracy disappears into the night. Nobody knows who she is, nobody has any clue who she is. John Bonfante and myself continued the search after the FBI and the police said she did not exist. They denied her existence completely six weeks later. or, Or four or five weeks later. John Bonfante and I continued the pursuit and I know for a fact in good faith that the FBI continued the pursuit because we were running into each other all the time. Yeah. And And while this is going on, they are continuing to exert pressure on Sandra Serrano. Anybody, anybody that hears the tape of the Sandra Serrano interrogation by Hank Hernandez of the SUS unit will be ashamed of being in a country where the police is allowed to do that. This guy battered Sandy Serrano, and it's on his own tape. The state of California has all those tapes. Anybody, any citizen that wants to know what went on, all they have to do is ask for a copy from the state of California. You listen to those tapes, and you see what a shameful interrogation that was. That was an interrogation. It was battering, asking her to change her story. Now, this is the one. this is not my tape. This is their own police tape. <laughs> How they can make those mistakes is beyond me, you know. But anyway, that's the case, you know. They yeah. Hank Hernandez, Hank Hernandez is CIA connected. The polygrapher the poly- polygrapher that they use, is a CIA agent. You know, he was on the contact for USAID for a long time. The office for USA for International Development. Is a CIA fraud and it has been. And it's he, been exposed by the, the Congress. Ted Kennedy exposed it that they are being used and they have almost the same budget as the CIA. Now, this guy, this polygrapher, this guy doing the polygraph, Hack Hernandez, is USID CIA connected. Manny Pena, the man in charge of the investigation is CIA connected. Why? After I did his retirement story, he went to work for the State Department. Six months later he was back here. When I was chasing my tape and I asked for it, he said, well, you know, you gotta go to SUS and ask them. So when I go upstairs, they were on the seventh floor by the by the way, at the time the whole floor was was occupied by CIA. So uh when I go upstairs to reclaim my table to demand my tape back, when I come out of the elevator, I cross on the hallway, I cross with a man, very heavy mustache, vigorous looking, very healthy. And I went two or three paces past him and I stopped and I looked back and he had done the same thing. Obviously, he had recognized me but didn't know who I was. And I recognized him and didn't know who he was. And then it came to me, and I said, "Manny." And he says, "Yeah." So I came down, we shook hands with him, and say, "What happened, Manny? I thought you were retired and working for the State Department." He says, "Oh well, yeah, they offered me a desk job, and I wasn't pleased with it, so I decided not to stay." So he came back. That's his story. Yeah. (laughs) The fact is, the fact is that he had been working as a contract agent for USID for years. He was training police forces overseas, particularly in Latin America, at a time when the CIA was sending out loads of products clearly marked torture to those police officers, you know, in in those forces. So uh, this is the stuff that the American public should know about, you know. (laughs) Yeah, but anyway, I mean, the, the the point being that the uh, the denials of the police are, are falling in deaf ears. I mean, it's laughable. Yeah, uh, how do you take twelve people that are responsible or twenty four people that are responsible business people and politicians and so on, people members of the community? And I said, yes, we saw that happen. And then the police command says, no, you didn't see that happen. How how does this work? <laughs> I mean, the whole thing really is laughable. If we were not painful because it harms our democracy so much, it is laughable. It's a max comedy. Yeah, yeah. Now, what we have now is a woman in a pocket of dress. I believe she was killed a month later. We were chasing that woman and we had a good lead. We had an excellent lead. We were going to Guam, and we were going to Taipei, we formerly Formosa. Why? Because this woman that predicted the killing, during those moments that she spent with, and those little flipses of information that, they, that she gave, uh, faith, she said things that are significant when you know where to look. She told Fei that she had to, on the way out of the country, she had to stop in San Jose at the Rosicrucian Temple. One of the main features that the, that the press concentrated in those days after the killing was the fact that Sehen Sehen was a Rochacrucian. And he learned and practiced through Rosicrucian Brooks all about self-enosis. That's a fact. We know that from the beginning of this case. This woman tells Faye that on the way out, she has to talk about the Roche Christian Temple in San Jose. So now we have a link between her and Faye, don't we? It belongs to the same club. belongs to the same agency. You still there? Yep, yeah, yes. Okay, now she tells him that. And at the same time, she says, and then I'm going to proceed to San Francisco to see if I can get passage on CAT or Flying Tigers Airline. Those are her words. She also said, on the way in through New York, three days ago, I met with, and she mentioned the person, and the person's name was Anna Chenault. The woman that predicted the killing met with Anna Chenault three days before the killing in New York or Washington. She said that. Right Now, now who is Anna Chenault? Anna Chenault is the widow of General Claire Lee Chenault. Claire Lee Chenault is an American hero, a folk hero. Because he was the organizer and the one that took the Flying Tigers to fight the Japanese in the Sino-Japanese War, the Flying Tigers were made famous in this country by Hollywood with a movie, the Flying Tigers, and in those days there were a lot of war movies about the effort in in uh, in China in, and in Japan. Now, clearly, Churchill was a daring, adventurous pilot who organized the Flying Tigers and gave the Japanese a hell of a fight in China. Now, after organizing the Flying Tigers, disappeared and morphed into CAT. That was at one-time China Air Transport. Then changed to Civil Air Transport, which was the airline that this woman was talking about Getting on San Francisco to get out to Taipan or, tai, or or Taipei. Now you tell me how does a middle, how does a young woman in her mid twenties pretend to get passage in a CIA airline? C A T is or was a 100% owned CIA airline in 1949. And it shut down the same month of the killing. Interesting to look at, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, she tells, say, I got to get there. I got to stop at the Russia Christmas I got to, and then she disappears. Never found her. We have Jordan Monfadi and I have the leave. My newspaper, the Hollywood Citizen News, did not have the resources for an investigation of this source. So I was happy that I had associated with Life Magazine, because they could afford it. Now we made plans to go to Taipei. Jordan Bonbandi and myself were making plans to go to Taipei. We even arranged for protection uh in Palm rings. You know, some unsavory characters that provided that type of protection, they arranged it. I didn't do it. So we were going to chase the footman back there, before we go, Jordan Bonfante tells me, he says, Fernando, this investigation is over. I said, what? He says, it's over. He says, the Life Magazine doesn't want to pursue this story. I said, okay, what happened? Well, this is, well, New York got a call from the White House saying that they want us to stop the investigation for national security reasons. Now I really flip my lid. Then I said, "What? <laughs> national Security reasons? You're going to be joking? This is the same thing they said with Jack Kennedy killing. Every time they do something that they should not be doing, they shut it down because of national security reasons. you have to be kidding?" He says, "No, that's what they tell me." Now. In any case, no matter how hungry I got, I didn't have the resources to keep chasing this. By this time, I'm being followed home every single day, right up to my doorstep. My telephones are tapped. Everywhere I go, I have a tail like I'm an animal. My own sources in the State Attorney General's office, in the DA's office, in the Metro Squad, in the LAPD intelligence, I'm using all my sources, and all my sources are telling me. My department is got you tapped, and they're chasing you. And I was under observation by every one of them. I don't know why, I'm a working newsman. <laughs> why do I need this attention? They should be using those resources elsewhere. Anyway... I felt safe because they were following me home every day, so I I guess I was the most protected newsman in the country at the time. But anyway, uh, when Life Magazine said that they would not finance the investigation, and I was so angry uh, because I thought, and I still think that this is the one of these crimes that could be resolved, uh, I decided, well, well, that's enough. By that time, my newspaper... Was being taken over by a bunch of gangsters from Colorado. And and I had a column called Focus. And, and I went ahead and said so. Make a show, long story short, I got fired for telling the truth. And uh, uh, I couldn't find a job, period. In, in news, even though my, I was always in the news because my Tony and my stories were making headlines. And I was on TV and radio all the time. In spite of that, I couldn't find a job. Because they said I... In other words, the truth is too hard to not be told to the public. So anyway, when I learned that, after a few months of looking for a new job and finding out, finally, Stan Chambers, a close friend and a good man and an icon in Los Angeles, Stan Chambers told me, says, Fernando, you're not going to find a job in this town. This is it. You know, we can just... We have, you know, families to protect, we, have to, we, we can't just risk, uh, or he didn't say so because he had the character to do it himself, but he says, you know, a man's not going to risk his job to give you one. You know, so anyway, point being that at that point I decided, well, if I can do this research for other people, I can do it for myself, and I decided to go into business, went into the construction business in real estate and because of my research skills I succeeded and became very rich in the next five years which then I very promptly lost in the last debacle in the last economic economic downturn is, is the euphemism they use this economic disaster we just went through put me back in the working class you know, working people. And so um, I started surfing through the Internet, and I saw that Shahan Shahan had said that he was a Manchurian candidate. Now, every single book ever written about this assassination claims that he was a Manchurian candidate. Every single book about the assassination gives me credit for being the only person to chase the woman in the polka dot dress. Now, if we're going to look, you know, uh, why, you know, somebody some some people, and maybe it's in your mind also, some people are like, why did you wait 45 years or 50 years nearly to tell your story? Yeah. It, it is an important story. It may change the direction of the investigation of this crime. Uh, why did you take so long? Well, in the first place, as I said, you know, when I quit, I didn't have the resources to pursue it by myself as a freelancer. I did not have an association because I was no longer associated with the Hollywood Citizen News. I was angry with the newspaper, I was angry with the public actually, because they don't pay attention to their government. And so I decided, you know, I would change careers and I made real estate investments and succeeded until the economy brought me back to the working class. And I'm surfing through the internet when I see this hand claims he's a maturing candidate, which holds books on the subject claim. And in doing that, when I'm reading this story, right next to it is a story about the Nixon conspiracy to scuttle the Paris peace talks. Right. So I went there and in looking through there, that's when I discovered that Anna Chino was one of the five conspirators involved in that conspiracy to, sh- to scuttle the Paris peace talks. Which, by the way, you know, the the, the war lasted four more years. 20,000 American youth lost their lives because of that. 1.2 million Laotians and Vietnamese lost their lives because of that. And, of course, Wall Street made billions of dollars. Of course, they always do. <laughs> Yeah, an important and interesting fact in in the book is that a a few weeks before, or a few days before uh, uh, President Johnson learned of of the treason, uh, Alexander Sachs, who I think is one of the owners of the country, you know, Alexander Sachs, you know who he is, you know, in the Wall Street. Right, right. Uh, of, of Alexander Sachs, you know, of Golden Sachs. Yeah. Uh, they had a meeting. They had a working lunch to discuss because they knew, Alexander Sachs knew that Nixon was trying to scuttle the Peace Talks. So he calls or he engages in a working luncheon with his Wall Street friends and doers to discuss how that would affect Wall Street. In other words, how is this gonna affect our pockets? If he succeeds or if he does not succeed. You know, if, if, either scenario, how, which direction is this headed? That was before. Now, the CIA knew about this conspiracy and didn't tell the president. Because Anna Shanov told me personally that the CIA knew. And yet they didn't tell the president. Yeah. Who tells the president? NSA. NSA intercepts a communication between the embassy in Washington and the embassy in in the, in in Vietnam, and is Anarchinot telling the president of Vietnam, "Hold on, we are going to win." Those are words that's on the record. Yeah. It's, in the Lyndon, it's in the Lyndon Johnson Library, it's on several books. Hold on, meaning don't go to Paris soft. don't make any organizations, we're going to win. You can get better terms than Nixon. To me, this sounds, this killing to me, really, truly, as risky as it's for me to say this, this sounds to me like the sinning of the herd. When you look at the facts, at that time, June 5th, the candidate for the Democrats, for Hugo Humphrey, at that time he was 23 points behind. And I know because I was the press director on the West Coast. But 23 points behind when he, when Kennedy was killed, Humphrey was 23 points behind. So that's not a threat to anybody. Right. 23 points behind, that's a route. Yeah. <laughs> And he was the only of Robert Kennedy was the only obstacle between Richard Nixon and the White House. So when Robert Kennedy wins the California primary, and he's got one foot in the White House already because he was the favorite. You know, he would have beaten Humphrey and everybody else, including Nixon. He when he stepped and he won the primary in California He became a real threat, the real nation's entry into the White House. To me, that's the real motive. And to me, that's what we really have to look. Someone in that campaign, whether it was Anna or one of the others, and by the way, the five conspirators were not sterling models of American citizenship. One of them was Agnew. He went to jail for bribery. The other one was Mitchell. He went to jail over Watergate. The other one was Nixon. He had to resign over Watergate and all his lying. So the people that the other one was Pat, uh, Senator Tower, John Tower of Texas was the other conspirator. A Republican from Texas who was uh, an alcoholic and womanizer. He is rumored to have been a. He's rumored to have been a, uh, a lover of, uh, Anna. You know that I don't know whether that's gossip or not. Uh, In any case, in any case, those are the five people involved in this conspiracy. Just, Just think of it. Just hear the names: Agnew, Mitchell. I mean, these are, to me, these are criminals. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They were proven to be criminals. They went to jail for being criminals. Those five people are involved in the pistol that killed so many people and cost this country so much treasure. That is there. That is, we know for a fact that these are things that are true because they are on the record at the library the Lyndon and Johnson Library in Northern Texas. Yeah, They have several books written about this treachery, about the scuttling of the Paris peace talks. This is all fact. Yeah. All we have to do is just fill in a few more dots and we got the whole picture. Well, I'll tell you, it's been very interesting conversation and uh, and uh, thank you for all your research and and the book is fascinating it's called polka dot file on robert f kennedy killing the paris peace talks connection and our guest has been author fernando Farah. thanks for being here thank you mr one the mission has been completed the end. By George, he's got it. It is the end. I'll see you. This has been a production of the Z-Talk Radio Network. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. You've been listening to the House of Mystery Radio Show. To find out more about our guests